you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. We've had a great hour with the science journalist and author Angela Saini with some historical background to and the implications of that today. And now we're going to be talking about impacts in architecture. And for that, she's joining us again live from the States alongside Lan Ray Balade of the Paradigm Network and Ming Cheng of Asian Architects. Welcome, all three of you, to Reba Radio. Um, Lan Ray, if I can start by asking you to uh, introduce yourself and... Uh, you know, what is your relationship with race? Thank you. Pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction, Marsha. My name is uh, Lanray Balade. I'm an architect, uh, co-founder of Balade Design Studio, as well as client lead for one of the largest housing associations in the UK, uh, and co-founding uh, committee member of uh, the Paradigm Network, which very much looks to champion and support uh, black and Asian representation within the built environment. Um, so my, uh, I guess, um, connection with race. Uh, I am obviously a black uh, male uh, architect um, and obviously uh, in the profession of architecture in the UK is um, there aren't too many of us. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be part of the conversation this this morning and hopefully they'll have lots of, uh, of insight to, to bring forward. Thanks, Lanre. Um Ming, uh, same question to you, a little bit of an introduction to yourself and um, what's your relationship with race? Well, first of all, uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's lovely to be here and uh, among you know, all, the, all the other people. Um, my name is Meng Cheng. I'm a uh, qualified architect, a qualified town planner, an urban designer. Uh, I have my own practice called Place Profile. We actually look at architecture and also city planning. Um, I'm also a co-founder of the Asian Architects Association together with Sumitya Singer and, and two other and, uh also Tumput Yasmin Fellow and Carl Mork and uh, Minish Pommel. Um, I mean, my relationship with, with race in, in architecture, probably a bit like Lanre, you know, there, uh, being a um, male and Asian architects, um, originally from Hong Kong. So I have a very, very different kind of special relationship probably to the UK and, um, and uh, just throughout actually studying and working in here, have a... I actually just discovered, you know, that uh, obviously there's not being represented and, uh, and hence the, the AAA. Um, and I also actually also teach, you know, at, at, at UCL, at the Barclay and also at the LSA. So just would like to engage with the conversation, you know, about uh, representation, you know, within our industry as well. Thanks, Ming. Now, Angela, thanks so much indeed for, for getting up early doors. Um, Angela, you one of the first things you said actually in our conversation that we played out a little bit earlier was that you're, you're quite passionate about contemporary architecture. So rather than asking you about race, <laughs> well, tell me about your love of architecture and, and um, contemporary architecture in particular. What's, 
what's so special about it for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure, especially to be alongside your two guests today. Um, I, um, many years ago, I did a fellowship at MIT, a science journalism fellowship, and we were allowed to take classes in whatever we wanted. Um, so I took a course in architecture at MIT when I was there for those six or nine months, um, because I have a love of uh, contemporary ar architecture, like I say, and, and wherever I live, I like to reflect. Um, that love it's not always possible to choose exactly where you would love to live um but uh it's yeah it's one of my passions i always take architecture tours wherever i'm traveling in the world um and i do and i do think the built environment is so important in building your sense of self uh how you feel about a place um and even i think it contributes to your sense of identity after a while I completely agree. And, and I, I have often said that the reason why I took this role is because I really believed that by influencing the creation of inclusive spaces, I could influence the creation of an inclusive society. Um, Lanre, if I could come to you and, and ask you this very, you know, you, you've alluded to it already, that there aren't many black architects. Um, why is that? Oh, um, when you talk about that not being many black architects obviously we're talking about uh, here in the UK uh, that's a situation and the context that we're operating and talking about um, I think being quite open and honest um, this is what this is what this platform is for um, the profession can be seen to be quite uh, white and quite male and middle class um, and the visibility of the profession to those who maybe don't fit into that category uh, can be quite limited. So um, one of the biggest challenges I think uh, for the profession is to reach uh, those who are, yes, underrepresented in terms of groups, um, but also getting to uh, those who are uh, students, uh, young students coming through the education system and giving them visibility of um, the profession. Um, especially when they may have um, or they may not have uh, social circles and family circles uh, that are part of the profession uh, that period in time. So I think there's a lack of visibility to groups that are coming through uh, from, a, from the younger ages um, of the profession and what it can hold. Um, and the fact that actually architecture is you know, something which uh, impacts all of our lives at every stage of our lives as well. Um, so it's something which we should all be able to contribute to, irrespective of, of race, background, uh, gender, ethnicity, and obviously uh, social class as well. What, what was the difference for you when you decided that architecture was for you? I was quite, um, I guess, uh, I guess in some ways, um, always... I'd been brought up in a, in a, in a, in a family that um, there were no kind of limitations in terms of what you could achieve. Uh, there was no um, curtailing of, of, of what you could aspire to be. Um, all my, you know, my, my family, our, our circles were very much people who kind of, you know, worked hard, um, professionals, uh, those who uh, were operating in whether it's medicine or law or accounting. So I was very much surrounded by those who uh, were working in, in some of these fields already, um, but not architecture, actually. Um, I was given the license to, to explore uh, and, and go as far as I wanted to in terms of looking at architecture as a profession. And I was always quite, uh, quite creative, quite um, open-minded, quite, um, I guess, observant and, and curious about the built environment and about society as well. 
Um, so for me, architecture was um, something which I gravitated towards because I wanted to blend uh, my appreciation of society, people, urban spaces with the technical and, and creative as well. Um, and even though I didn't necessarily have uh, architects in my sphere of influence or my family's sphere of influence directly, um, I was never discouraged and I was always encouraged to pursue those ambitions. Um, and that was because of, I guess, seeing people within maybe my own sphere of influence in terms of family sphere of influence who were doing similar um, things in other professions as well. So I think having uh, that support and that network to kind of say actually, okay, we're not necessarily architects, but we are operating in other fields, similar professions, then uh, that gave me the confidence to, to pursue that. And uh, I definitely wasn't discouraged in any way. Mm. Ming, uh, Asian architects, um, you yourself as uh, Hong Kong um, originating, uh, is there a sense that those from uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia heritage have a particular experience um, when you're over here trying to, to be an architect? Well, I think it's a very, um, I mean, personally, you know, for me, it's a very um, interesting journey, you know, to me anyway, because um, being born and grew up in Hong Kong, you know, it's a colonial, you know, part of, uh, of the British Empire, uh, the remnant of that. And initially, when, when I was actually being, being like a, a lot of um, middle-class um, Asian family, my my parents actually worked in, in a, uh, as a civil servant, so that is actually one. Of, that is part of the reason why I, I can actually come to this country is just, just because it's almost kind of part of the perks. Um, mm. But when I actually first came over here, you know that because I've been I've been grew up in 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 colonial Hong Kong, you know I I always felt that uh, I've probably feel more included, you know, in this country because of. Well, you know, I, I actually see the portrait of the Queen every day uh, when I go to school or when whatever, whatever special ceremony, you know, you always actually raise the British flags and then et cetera, et cetera. So my perception was to say, well, you know, I could quite easily actually fit in. And uh, and obviously the reality of that is probably probably very, very different, you know, probably similar to what Lamry has probably experienced. And I've, I just find... Um, is particularly difficult, you know, that um, uh, very much like um, uh, Lamro was actually saying is there is actually quite a lot of, probably a lot of students actually go in and study architecture. But as when you actually get out on, on, on at the other end is even when I actually start working, you know, all these years ago, I just don't actually, I, I, I can't actually see any kind of role model. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, I mean, even now today, if you actually name me, Name me one Asian architect that's actually within our industry that you can that I can look up to say for any kid to say, well, I want to be looked like him, and and I think that is actually a a problem that we have in the industry. And um, I always almost kind of say, well, surely we we must have enough Asian architects or ethnic minorities, you know, in this country to be good enough to be within the senior management role, you know, to have much more exposure. And I think that's part of the reason why. Um, we formed the Asian Architects Association. And, and when you say Asian, do you mean uh, anyone from the continent of Asia or do you mean someone who's from uh, more uh, Chinese or, or Japanese backgrounds or what, what, when you, how are you describing Asian? Well, I mean, a Asian as in, as in the continent. The continent, so, right. Yeah. But, okay. but particularly, you know, even if we're thinking about, um, you know, Far East Asia or, or even in, 
let's say in India or, or within that mm. kind of continent, you know, is is still a complete lack of rep representation within our industry. Okay, um, Angela, listening to uh, both Ming and Lanre there, uh, the word colonial came up a couple of times, and that sense of, um, uh, you know, that being a way that you feel like you could belong, <laughs> and then coming over here and maybe not feeling feeling that to what extent does that really shape people's idea of identity that colonial idea um in the opening um introduction of superior which is the book that i wrote on race um i use the example of the british museum as a space in which um identity is constructed and this is true of national museums all over the world wherever you go in the world you will see a reflection of what that country wants to project both to its own citizens and to outsiders. And what's interesting about a lot of the architecture that you see, not just in London, but even here in New York is how neoclassical it is. And the reason for that is because at that particular point in time when these cities were uh, you know, first being constructed in the way that we see them now, um, there was this sense that um, Western Europe was the heir to the Greeks and the Romans, and there was a racial. There were racialized ideas behind this that um, these were the great empire civilizations, and now now Britain was the great empire civilization, and the architecture reflected that. So it's built in to the environment. This idea that when you enter this space, you are entering the space of empire, and um, you should feel overawed by it, and to some extent. Um, and myself included, I visited the museum a lot when I was growing up because I was Londoner and all school kids do. Um, you've, the way that each region of the world is segregated within the museum, and there's different ways to classify objects, of course, but the way that that, that does it, it assumes that in each part of the world, everyone created and developed their technologies and ideas and uh, everything else, art, separately. Um, and it glosses over the fact that actually the job of building the world and creating things, the job of science and development, engineering, all of it is a global project and always has been. The science, the science that is practiced in modern Western Europe began in Asia and Africa and Middle East and traveled um, the medicine, maths, engineering, metallurgy, everything. But we forget that in the way that we divide the world up and then think about it in a siloed type of way and then think about hierarchies between places. So you can see it for yourself in the style of architecture that has been chosen over the ages, the ways in which that reflects the racialized views of that particular place and time. Um, and it becomes con contested. When I lived in Delhi um, many years ago when I was working there, there are still um, arguments that happen over the parts of Delhi that were built by the British that look very neo-colonial um, and you know there have been arguments for decades over whether they should be torn down and something more keeping with Indian historical traditional ancient culture should be built in their places um, that doesn't happen because they are, they are very beautiful as well um, but it's important for us to understand those histories and the ways in which they shaped not just how people thought about themselves in the past but how in seeing them even in the present they think they influence how we think about ourselves now. 
I'm joined by science journalist and author Angela Saini with Lanre Bolade of the Paradigm Network and Ming Cheng of Asian Architects talking about race in architecture. Lanre, I saw you really engage with what um, Angela was saying just there about colonialism and the way that kind of plays into architecture. What were your thoughts as you were listening to her? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting thought. I mean, I've actually started reading the book uh, Superior uh, in the last couple of months. And um, yeah, it really struck me, actually, because I think just to kind of start the book in terms of um, a bit of the introduction, um, Angela was talking about the idea of, of, of race being a, a bit of a social construct, which I thought was a little bit kind of mind-blowing, actually, because you've never really kind of taken the time to think, actually, is this something which we as humans have, have conjured up uh, and we continue to perpetuate and reinforce it um, without really, really challenging it. Um, and I guess in the in the last probably um, 18 months or so since obviously Black Lives Matter, I think the conversation has come to the fore where people are beginning to understand actually there's a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of things which we haven't necessarily questioned about race um, as deeply before, um, and especially for, 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 for many of us. Um, uh, in the in the UK, especially within architecture as well. Um, so I kind of wanted to probably pose a question back to to Angela and talk about that idea of, of race being a social construct, and and what the last eighteen months has 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 done in your eyes um, in terms of the conversation um, and and what it maybe does going forward as well. Because I think some of the, the ideas you talked about in terms of looking at you know. Uh, artifacts and, and and the composition of um, the British Museum and and how the narrative of, of, of global history is played out. Um, how how has that potentially changed and and how does it move forward positively to to make uh, the the discussion about uh, race on a global level a lot more inclusive and a lot more honest and transparent and um, uh, you know, giving giving um, credit to yeah, to the depth of history that exists in, in, in Africa and, and the foundations of, I guess, civilization as well that's emanated from, from Africa, but also parts of Asia as well. Um, that's a really good question. Um, and I think museums, uh, particularly over the last 18 months, have become a bit of a battleground for this conversation because they do, not just in the way that they're, in the way that they classify, but also in the objects that they have. Of course, British Museum is full of objects that have been looted or taken or borrowed, shall we say, from the, from other parts of the world. And um, there is a huge debate going on about whether they should be returned and how they should be repatriated. And there are other museums in other parts of the world in which that process of repatriation is already taking place. Um, the difficulty here, of course, is um, the reason that these objects were taken in the first place is because, like I say, there were these ideas in the 18th, 19th and well into the 20th century about racial hierarchy and civilizational hierarchy that informed who thought it was appropriate to take what they did. So if you go into the British Museum and you look at the Rosetta Stone, which is like a show piece, one of the main most beautiful objects in the museum, you'll see on the side of it, um, the British Army, when they took this object, engraved something on the side as a kind of to kind of claim it um which feels sacrilegious to us now that anyone could even dream of doing that to an object that's so important and beautiful um but that was the way you know people thought about these things at the time and to some extent when you look at the way in which the debate around nationalism and britishness especially since the brexit vote has played out in 
the UK, there is still there are still vestiges of that. There are still people who cling to this idea that empire, the British Empire, was a positive thing. That it was the moment at which Britain was at its best rather than at its worst. And um, there's a reluctance, even among even in the government right now. Of course, we can see that play out in the culture wars to change that narrative of history um, and to allow museums to tell it in the broader way that they should be telling it telling that history. Um, so I find it really disheartening. As someone who works with science and technology museums, for instance, I sit on the advisory board of a couple of museums, and I find it really disappointing that this particular government has taken the position that they have when it comes to cultural spaces to not say, yes, let's own up to the problems as well as the things that we're proud of. Um, you know, let's embrace a broader and more honest and accurate version of history that really encompasses the whole world and sees progress as not something that was just confined to Europe, but as something that was happening everywhere at different points in time. Um, and this, and instead kind of reverted to this very myopic vision of history that does really no service to anyone, and especially in internet age. I mean, you only have to go online to know the truth for yourself. Museums, I think, run the risk, and this government runs the risk of preserving a sense of nationalism in its own imagination that isn't shared by everybody else. Now, we don't have a, a representative from the government to rebut that particular uh, point of view. But um, uh, if you want to go online to find out the government's view on um, uh, media and culture, please uh, do so. Um, Ming, if I can ask you, especially alongside, uh, you know, this idea of, of having the architects, the Asian architects group, what is it that has compelled you and Samita and the others to have this group? What is it about the experience of Asians in architecture, which means you've had to set up a group? Um, well, I mean, first of all, is one of the reasons why uh, we set it up is, um, I mean, you know, Samita has actually done um, a tremendous amount of work, you know, to try to have the kind of inclusibility of, of um, everyone. But um, I think it's just what we found out is is the common perceptions, you know, of particularly with 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 Asians that uh, perhaps is just being unfairly um, kind of like stereotype, and and it it just quite a lot of quite a lot of the common perception is just completely not true, you know, that um, when 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 being 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 discussed, you know, for instance, you know, things about uh, can can. Can leadership role, you know, being being um, uh, promoted, you know, to, to to Asian, and the common the common perception is no, you know, Asian they 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 are just you know quite like just to be uh, just do the work, you know, they have no interest as being a leadership, you know, in leadership role, you know, they only just want to draw or they only just want to do design, you know, they um, they don't actually want to uh, entertain clients, you know, or, or develop, you know, or whatever. So hence the reason why we don't promote, you know, Asian, you know, at all. But that's just complete nonsense, you know. Because, well, if if that is actually the case, there will be no architects in in Asia. There will be no architects director in Asia. Full stop. You know that that is just not true, you know, as well. And hence, that's the reason why we just want to start this conversation and and actually say, well, you know what, um, Asian, we actually quite happily to to actually go and develop and client development, or actually go and uh, um, talk to the client and develop, you know, whatever you actually need to do. I think one of one of the one of the things that I I mean for me you know anyway is I find it quite astounding is um, 
surely you know we have we have lots of ethnic minorities you know here including you know black or asian uh, architects and my argument is okay if you are actually not good in uh, you know if it's something that the ethnic minorities that we are not we are lacking something to be promoted to be a director either we're lacking something so in that case well tell us what it is and then we can go and identify it and then we'll actually improve it you know whatever that we need to do do we need to play golf or do we need to you know do, do something else do we need to go on holiday you know in cornwall every year you know that seems to be that seems to be you know one of the common themes you know, in there. or or otherwise uh, if we are not lacking anything well you can promote uh, an asian or ethnic minority um, architect tomorrow to be a director full stop so what is it and you've got the but the Paradigm Network, um, Laurie, what, what are your aims? Yeah, um, the, the Paradigm Network was set up um, in 2017 uh, with five um, co-committee uh, members. And our overarching ambition was really to provide, I guess, greater visibility of the great talent uh, that exists within the pool of uh, young, emerging black architectural assistants, architects uh, working in, in, in the UK and providing a platform um, that would give them visibility, that would provide them with opportunities, provide them with opportunities to, to develop um, uh, career skills that would enable them to move up the ladders and, and see people who were like them uh, doing that, uh, however small. So we, we kind of came together with the ambition that actually we're going to you know, take this issue um, of lack of representation um, and lack of career mobility uh, from being an architectural assistant to being an architect and stalling somewhere along the lines in terms of getting to, if you were lucky, maybe associate, associate director, but really never making it to, to the very top. Um, so we wanted to create something that would inspire, that would motivate, encourage and provide you know, visible evidence that actually you as a young black female aspiring architect can get to where you want to be. Um, ultimately, I think what we've realized over the last couple of years is that we're not asking for anything um, other than people want to finish the race they've started. They want to get qualified. They want to be the very best architect they can be. Um, and we thought, actually, we need a platform to really push this agenda forward and, and have difficult conversations, um, but begin to show people that actually, you know, we're not asking for anything uh, more than just uh, enable people to be the architects they want to be. If I can come to you, um, Ming, uh, that idea that actually, you know, you're trying to highlight the, these issues of, of Asian lives in architects, but it, it's not up, up to people from underrepresented groups to try to fix this so so what are you trying to do to push that agenda forward well i mean very much like lan ray you know we we feel as with anyone who's feel probably underrepresented we, we just need to uh, like to have a voice and um and i think the one of the way to do it is uh, actually a group of people actually come together and try to create a platform and just say well actually you know um Asian architects, we are actually just as diverse and just as capable and just as, you know, bright as anyone. And um, is we we're just going to try to you know promote you know ourselves and try to continue with the debate. And um, we will hopefully uh, actually going to show you know everyone else to say, well, actually, the, the, an, an Asian architect is just no different to any architects. It's a little bit sad though, isn't it, Lanre, that we kind of sort of have to convince people that. You know, just because of the colour of your skin and the way you might look, you're somehow still as good as. Isn't there something inherently wrong with taking that point of view? We're, we're as good as. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, let's 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 look at it on a macro scale. In terms of the question about race, I mean, why are we even having the, dis the, the debate about you know is racism wrong? That's a, it's a it's a pointless debate that we shouldn't even be entertaining. Um, but the reality is that we we still need to. Um, so it's it's a difficult one. I think you know we need to be involved in the conversation. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's not for us to solve this problem. Um, we're here. We're present. You know, we have the capabilities, we have the, the skills, everything is there. Um, but there is a big blocker in the way that there's a, there's a lack of um, understanding of people who are considered to be other and the lack of willingness to really engage with them and see beyond colour and see beyond difference to understand actually there are people here of value, people who can bring something to practices, people who can add a lot of value to practices. And if even if you were looking at it selfishly, you could say, you know, we can we can increase your bottom line right uh, and to make you a profitable and sustainable business but if actually when you think about it it's a lot more than that you're bringing in people who have experiences who have lived experiences who have different backgrounds and, and cultures and they can add a lot of flavor a lot of uh, interest a lot of different ways of thinking about solving some of the biggest challenges that we're addressing in terms of uh, through the built environment and society and everything else so you're missing out on, on potentially a lot of untapped kind of potential there by ignoring that and, and looking at it just on face value in terms of you're seeing a different color and, and somebody who maybe you don't think you relate to. So I think it's for business leaders, practice leaders, those in positions of authority and, and ability to make change to kind of say, actually, we need to address this here. We've got a talent pool here that we're not making the most of. We're not investing um, fullest in, in terms of uh, potential. Uh, and we need to make a change and do that. And obviously that's, that's part of the work that you're beginning to kind of really kind of motor on with. And I think it's, it's much needed. Well, thank you for that acknowledgement, Larry. <laughs> um, Angela, you know, what, what kind of solutions have, have you seen and, and, and heard of and, and would advocate um, in this area? Well, when it comes to entrenched racism, which is what we're talking about here, you know, it's just fundamentally people believing that certain groups of people are different in the way that they think or behave or you know, what they're capable of doing, then I think we have to dismantle... Um, the underlying ideologies behind this and it comes back to what I was saying earlier that when you have ideas about nations and um, national identity built on certain um, precepts then it's those it's those historical ideas that you need to revisit and and bit by bit break down where do these ideas come from and how can we build a society with very different values that doesn't rely on these uh, underlying assumptions um, and that's a very slow process. It takes a very long time. I've been through it myself in the process of researching my work and doing writing my books. I've had to very slowly realign even how I think about myself and my own identity. Um, there was this idea that I had for years, and I think it's because society kind of forces you into these boxes to think that there is something deep down that is Indian about me because my parents were born in India and it'll always be Indian about me and it kind of shapes my character <laughs> perhaps you know there's some kind of um, underlying subconscious idea that there was something Indian about me and there really isn't there is no kind of biological essence that that leads to your racial identity what this is is are just ideas that we have that we have constructed these are social constructs that we've built over many hundreds of years around social and political difference um, that we've then imposed stereotypes on layers and layers which now we're living with to this day 
the process of extricating yourself from that and extricating others, the way that you think about other people um, involves really interrogating all of that bit by bit. Um, it's incredibly difficult. It takes a lifetime. Um, but I do see people doing that, um, going back to what we were discussing earlier, that over the last 18 months, I've seen a huge amount of change in the willingness of people to do that, to revisit the past and um, uh, think about their own identity in new ways. The, the process of peeling back those layers and starting to get to the systemic nature of where this discrimination comes from, it does take time, but the, the impact for those now who are suffering now from discrimination, I mean, Lanre, what, what, what can we reasonably ask practices to do now whilst they are also navigating the fact that we are in a society that is essentially racial, racialized to recognise that we're living in this racialized society and therefore try to mitigate the impact of that racialization? Oh. Answer that one, not right. Exactly. <laughs> tough, tough question. Um, yeah, I think let's start off with, you know, let's have let's start off with having those open, open conversations. I think you need to create um, conditions within within practices for those conversations to, to happen openly and, and know that there'll be no um, you know reprisals or, you know, any any kind of sanctioning that happens because people are kind of talking genuinely and openly about you know what they've experienced or potentially what they've done in the past themselves um, i think that needs to happen and, and create conditions so that both members of staff and, and leaders can actually you know look each other in the eyes and have you know sometimes difficult but yeah much needed conversations i think we've seen over the last 18 months that there have been a lot of exhausting conversations i mean personally for ourselves as committee members of the paradigm network we facilitated uh, conversations between members of our um, uh, group um, and and some of them you know bringing forward a lot of years of, of, of turmoil and and confusion and things that they've experienced within the workplace um, they've all kind of come out to the fore and you know it's been a, a weirdly therapeutic kind of process because you've now been able to talk about things you've experienced in in, in, in the profession um, racism that people have experienced um, misunderstandings and you know, it, it's been therapeutic and in a good way um, and also exhausting as well in the, in the sense that, you know, why is it taking so long for people to really understand what it is that we uh, are going through? So that's probably number one um, in terms of creating the conditions for conversations to happen. I think number two is probably about uh, leadership uh, and those practice leaders really kind of putting in place a strategy to look at how they're going to address, uh, you know, greater inclusivity, greater equality, greater equity within their practices and actually put in place a, a plan, a, a strategy, a roadmap to really, really integrate um, EDI into the core of their practices. I think ultimately it's about creating inclusive environments. And as architects, we should be the forerunners in that. You know, We should be the ones who are really driving that agenda from a social perspective, economic, environmental, but you know, we're about creating great places for people um, and that starts you know, in the office. I um, absolutely 100% agree, of course. And certainly that idea that it, I always say there are three things you can do. Listen, 
listen, listen. And there are three more things that you can do is believe, believe, believe. Those people who come to you with their experiences, um, there is so much. This is why the CQ knowledge piece is so important. You need to, to surround yourself with that diversity of lived experiences and listen to those voices very different from your own and understand that those perspectives are real and they're worth believing and they need to be understood and acknowledged and um, internalized and reflected on so that our practices and our industry and our sector can move forward differently. Um, what What is the Asian uh, networks um, trying to push forward as, as well, Ming? Well, I think um, as well as what we just discussed so far, I think, I think one of the things that we need to do is for practices to actually go and do it. As simple as that. Because how many times have we actually seen um, events be, um, related to race, you know, or whatever that we need to do. And then afterwards, we have all the practices in, in the social media network or whatever in the in, in the press they say, they all say, we are an extremely diverse and very inclusive uh, practices. We condone, you know, we, we don't support, you know, any of that. And, and then yet, you can actually just see it. You know, you can say, well, we, we have a very, very diverse practice. And then you, you literally just need to go to their website and have a, have, and have a look at their, and look at their leadership um, um, uh, page. They are quite happy to actually uh, parade, you know, all their leaders in there. And you suddenly think, well, you don't, you're not actually, you're not actually doing what you're preaching. So go, go and do it. And, yeah, it and, really isn't that hard as, as far as you two are concerned. Yeah, and it isn't. Well. It isn't. I think, you know, increasingly more and more uh, architects are beginning to kind of, you know, recognize that actually if I want to work for a practice and invest my life or at least part of my life in, in, a, in a practice, then I'm going to look very carefully about who I'm going to apply for. I'm going to look at what their leadership looks like. I'm going to look at the diversity of their, of their staff members and say, well, actually, are they, are they you know, are they um, doing what they preach? Um, and it's going to become more evident. You know, the practices that are going to be, you know, stand the test of time and kind of be sustainable in terms of, you know, profitability, in terms of, you know, continuing to win work will be the ones that are responding to this agenda. It's just like the environmental agenda that we're facing in terms of climate change. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a racial change agenda that's going to be happening over the coming years and the practices that recognize it and genuinely want to address it will be the ones who I think will be around uh, for longer. Uh, and not just around, just for the sake of being around, but actually being around, creating um, a great kind of practice, a great environment people want to work in and stay in. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that people want to invest their lives in practices. Because um, architecture is hard work. You know, projects take three, four, five years to complete. You want people who are going to be invested. Um, and they won't be invested if they see that actually there's a very, you know, there's not a glass ceiling, but there's a concrete ceiling. Mm. And I relate this a lot to the, um, I guess, the the kind of the agenda that females have been facing as well in the profession for, for many years. And it's very similar, you know, females in architecture, females in construction is very much similar to the, to the issue around, you know, black and Asian in construction or, or race in, in architecture. So um, I think, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely still a lot of work to do, but I think... Um, those practices that don't wake up and almost smell the coffee will be the ones that will be definitely be left behind. You're listening to Reba Radio. Real inclusive, brilliant action. You can join the Reba wherever you work in the built environment by heading over to architecture.com to find out more. <laughs>